listen, don't look for fullness of joy here. Don't expect it here. You can enjoy joy to a measure here. But in God's presence, you will experience perfect, unending, unmitigated joy. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello, I'm Bill Wright. On today's program, Tom begins a brand new series called Six Steps to Spiritual Stability. Have you ever wondered what it means to be spiritually mature or spiritually stable? How about your own life? Are you someone that stands firm spiritually in the face of trial or conflict? Well, through this eight-part series, Tom will explore what the Apostle Paul has to say about spiritual stability, as taught from Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. Not only will you learn six biblical steps to spiritual stability, including the reality of the spiritual battle, you'll also come to recognize the reality of the incredible joy available to those who stand fast, perfect, unending joy. That kind of spiritual stability should be the goal of every Christian. Well, now, before we begin, here's Tom with some opening thoughts. You know, Bill, I think this time in which we're living has provided in all of us a growing desire for true stability, and especially for those of us in Christ, spiritual stability. And that's really what we're going to learn. Paul, in this amazing passage, so compact, so concise, is going to explain to us how each of us can arrive at a place where we enjoy true stability in our Christian lives. It's understandable. It's practical. And I think we'll all benefit from our time together. Thanks, Tom. And friend, open your Bible now and let's join our teacher on The Word Unleashed. I had the worst of conditions. It started 10 miles out because many of the landing craft were swamped by high seas as they tried to make their way in the 10 miles from the ships to the shore. The survivors, once they did reach the beach, were overwhelmed with seasickness and they were quite wobbly. Well over half of the amphibious tanks that were supposed to support the landing couldn't make it because they were victims of the heavy seas that really they hadn't been designed to navigate. Strong winds and heavy currents redirected some of the landing craft to different areas of the beach separate from the target they were supposed to hit. And all of that vaunted allied aircraft power that was supposed to provide support for those landing on Omaha Beach wasn't effective because of the low cloud cover. They were flying blind and because of fear of somehow hitting their own troops with the ordnance, they they pulled up and dropped it farther inland than they were supposed to, in some cases up to three miles inland is where the ordnance fell that was supposed to support the troops on the beach. The beach itself was a tangle of obstructions. The Germans had had years, literally, to prepare for this event. The the circumstances of the geography made it hard for our troops because there was a four-mile run of cliffs that ran somewhere on average of 100 to 150 feet high, and the Germans sat up on those cliffs simply able to look down and take shots at whatever came onto the beach. But in spite of all those odds, as you have heard and read, there were some heroes that day on Omaha Beach. One of them that you may not have heard of was actually a group of rangers, three companies of rangers, 
who had been assigned the responsibility to destroy a battery of six 155-millimeter guns that were positioned up on the cliff front. Through all of those obstacles, through all of the difficulties I've just detailed, they made their way actually up, scaled the 100-foot cliff, which is what it was where they needed to go, and they arrived at the top, defeated the Germans that were on the top, and then realized that the gun placements had been moved back several hundred yards. In spite of that, they made their way to those six gun emplacements, were able to spike all of them, and then they held their ground. They held their position for two days against continuing waves of counterattacking Germans. When they were relieved two days later, the three companies were down to 90 men, but they stood their ground, defending their post against all costs. That's standing firm in the face of fire. And that's what Paul wants each of us to do in the spiritual war which we're called to be engaged. Let's turn back to Philippians chapter 4. For those of you who are visiting with us today, we've been in, involved in, I guess now about a little over a year-long study of the book of Philippians. We find ourselves in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 1. Notice how Paul writes to these dear friends of his in Philippi, Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Notice that Paul begins this verse by highlighting his personal affection for these people. He says they're his brethren. That is, they're like brothers and sisters to him. He says he loves them. Notice he uses the phrase beloved twice in this one verse. He says, I long to see you. He has this longing in his heart to be with these people. And then he adds that you are my joy and crown. You are the cause of my joy, and you are the ones who bring me honor. But verse 1 is really a transition verse. Even as Paul expresses his love for these people, he's transitioning between what he's been discussing in chapter 3 and what he's going to discuss later in chapter 4. Notice the transition word that begins the chapter. Therefore, this Greek word, it always looks back to what has gone before. You remember we saw last time at the end of chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, Paul had said, our citizenship is in heaven. This is not where we belong. And we're waiting eagerly for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble estate into conformity with the body of His glory. Paul says, listen, in light of the fact that you don't belong here, in light of the fact that your citizenship is in heaven, in light of the fact that you're eagerly waiting for Christ to return, and when he returns, he's going to make you just like him, in terms of a body just like him, just like his body. He says, in light of all of that, I want you to stand firm. It's an interesting word, stand firm. Paul uses it often throughout his epistles, but I think you can get the best flavor for this word from a usage in Romans chapter 14, verse 4. We won't turn there, but in that passage, he refers to standing firm or falling. That contrast gives you an idea of what this word means. To stand firm is the opposite of falling. To stand firm or fall, those are the two alternatives in the Christian life. This word, stand firm, means to be stable, to remain steadfast, not to be moved from how you live or what you believe. This word was often used in secular Greek to describe a soldier who stands firm at his post, regardless of what it cost him, just like those companies of rangers on 
D-Day. It's describing spiritual stability. That kind of spiritual stability is the goal of every Christian. The ability to stand firm, to stay at your post, and to be unmoved by the circumstances around you. It's really a lack of stability that characterizes spiritual immaturity. If you want to see spiritual immaturity, turn back a few pages to Ephesians 4. And notice how Paul describes it. He says, uh, after he's discussed the wonderful gift to the church of gifted men to help build up and equip the saints, he says in Ephesians 4.14, he says, I don't want you to be any longer children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. You see, immaturity is characterized by instability. He says instead, verse 15, I want you to grow up into Christ who is the head because as you grow up, as you mature, there comes with maturity stability. So Paul's desire for each of us is that we become spiritually stable. You say, well, that sounds wonderful. How do I do that? How do I get there? Well, you'll notice back in Philippians chapter 4, Paul tells us how. It's contained in one little word. He says, therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, stand firm in this way. I slightly reordered the order of the text there to give you an idea of what he's expressing. Stand firm in this manner, in this way. In other words, what follows verse 1, the staccato imperatives that are recorded in verses 2 through 9, outline the path to spiritual stability. You want to be spiritually stable? You want to be solid You want to stand in the face of whatever comes? Then you're going to learn how in verses 2 through 9. Stand firm in this way. Because in those verses, Paul identifies six specific steps to spiritual stability or maturity. Six specific steps to spiritual stability. Each of these steps over the next couple of weeks. Let's begin today with the one that's contained in verses 2 and 3. The step is this. Resolve to live in harmony with other Christians. Resolve to live in harmony with other Christians. In verse 2, Paul writes, I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. He says, if you're going to be spiritually stable, then it starts with having the right, a right relationship with the Christians around you. Why is that? Because in this spiritual battle, as in physical war, you need your fellow soldiers. We depend on each other for strength. We depend on each other for help. And if you're going to be spiritually stable, then you need to be in right relationship with other Christians. Now, there's so much confusion about what true unity is. Let me, before we look at what this means, tell you what it doesn't mean. Paul is not saying that you and I should compromise fundamental doctrines of the Christian faith in order to have unity with others. If you have any doubt about that, just look at some of Paul's writings. Turn to Galatians. You don't need to turn there, but if you were to turn to Galatians chapter 1, Verses 8 and 9, what does Paul say about those who distort or twist the gospel? He says, let them be accursed. 
Let them be damned. Paul is not at all encouraging us to compromise on the fundamental doctrines of the Christian faith. Nor is he encouraging us to overlook a pattern of gross, unrepentant sin in the lives of fellow Christians. You know, there's some who say, well, I know so-and-so is entrapped in a sin, but, you know, I just want us all to get along. Kind of the Rodney King approach to Christianity. Can't we all just get along? Paul wasn't into this either. Turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I want you to see this in his, in his own words. 1 Corinthians 5. Shockingly, in the Corinthian church, the leadership and the people were tolerating the sin of incest. And Paul addresses this in chapter 5. And then after he addresses the specific issue that's going on in Corinth, he steps back and he looks at the bigger picture. Notice verse 9. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. Now, they misunderstood. He says, I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you'd have to go out of the world. He says, listen, I didn't mean don't associate with people like that who are unbelievers. Because if you didn't associate with people like that who were unbelievers, you'd have to leave the world. This is what unbelievers do. He says instead, verse 11, but actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother. That is, somebody who says, I'm a Christian. Don't associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. What is Paul saying? He's saying, listen... If you know of someone who says, I'm a Christian, but's living a pattern, an unbroken pattern of sin, then you're not even to associate with that person. You don't even have a meal with him in fellowship. He goes on to say, verse 12, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside God judges, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. So Paul is not advocating, in, in Philippians chapter 4, verse, verses 1 through 3, that we should overlook serious doctrinal error or that we should overlook a pattern of unrepentant sin. Well, look at the circumstances here in Philippians chapter 4. Notice these two women are not peripheral people. These are not two ladies who are known for bad tempers and wagging tongues. Look at how this passage describes them. They were obviously members of the church. That's why they're in this letter to church at Philippi. And they were genuine believers. Look at the end of verse 3. He says, their names are in the book of life. These are true believers. Not only that, these women were active in ministry. He says in verse 3, they have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel. And they had previously shown an ability to work alongside of others. Notice he says, they shared my struggle together with Clement. Now we don't know who that is, but obviously the the Philippians did, and the rest of my fellow workers. So these ladies were not known for being antagonistic, hard to get along with women. They had labored together with Paul. They had labored together with these other people. But now, these two women disagree over some issue, we don't know what it was, that doesn't involve fundamental doctrine, or Paul would have addressed it, and it doesn't involve a clear biblical sin, or Paul would have addressed that as well. A disagreement between two women over something that doesn't rise to that level. Now listen, folks, this will happen in every church. Men and women will disagree. It happened even between Paul and Barnabas. Turn back to Acts chapter 15. In Acts 15, at the end of the Jerusalem council, after that wonderful high point in the life of the church, 
when they came together and decided to, to defend the true gospel against the Judaizers and to make sure that works wasn't added to faith as a way to be justified before God. At the end of that, verse 36, says that after some days had passed, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. So let's go back and let's check and see how things are going. Barnabas wanted to take John, called Mark, a relative of his, along with them also. But Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along, who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there occurred such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another, and Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and left, being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. And he was traveling through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Obviously, if a disagreement arose between one of the apostles of Christ and his traveling missionary companion, then it's important to realize for us that disagreements will happen. But what's important is how we choose to respond. If you choose to try to get others to side with you against the other person, then you're in real danger of becoming what the Bible calls divisive. A divisive person is simply one who uses an issue of disagreement to try to drive a wedge between others in the church. God hates that kind of division and those who cause them. In fact, Proverbs 6 couldn't be clearer. You remember that passage where it says, Six things God hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. The last one listed in that list is the one who causes strife among brothers. You know, it's interesting to me that even in Corinth, we already saw in 1 Corinthians 5 that the, the church in Corinth was a very troubled church. I mean, tolerating incest. You go on later in the book and you discover that they were having these sort of drunken brawls at their love feast connected to the Lord's table. They were suing one another. But where does Paul begin when he begins to address the problems in Corinth? What is first on the radar screen with Paul when he starts with the church in Corinth? Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. He's just gotten done with his greeting, and here he goes. Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and the same judgment. And then he goes on to describe the differences. Chapter 3, he comes back to it. Verse 3, he says, Since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly and are you not walking like mere men? In other words, you're acting like you're not even regenerate. This was a constant concern of Paul's. He comes back to it in chapter 11, verse 16. Disagreements will occur, but when there are disagreements, determine in your heart that you will not allow that disagreement to become a point of division. So how do you deal when, with disagreements when they come? When neither a fundamental doctrine nor a clear biblical sin is involved, how do you res resolve a situation between you and another brother in the church? You and another sister in the church. Well, there's some clues back in Philippians chapter 4. Let's look at them together. Here's how you deal with that kind of problem. Here's how you resolve those disagreements. First of all, understand how important resolution is. Notice verse 2. Paul says, I urge you. Literally, the Greek word is to beg, to plead. He says, I plead with you. I beg you. And he repeats the word twice. Notice how he says in English as in Greek, 
the word urge before each of their names. It's as if Paul turns to one of the ladies in the congregation and he says, I plead with you, I urge you, I beg you. And then he turns to the other and he says, I beg you. And he mentions them by name. That's unparalleled in the writings of Paul for those who are faithful to the truth to sort of bring them up publicly. You see, we don't tend to think of disagreements as a major issue, but they were for Paul because Paul could see what could eventually come. It could eventually divide the church. Understand how important resolution is. Listen, if you get into a disagreement with a brother or sister in Christ, don't let it lie. Resolve it. How do you resolve the issues? Understand how important it is. Work at personal resolution. Work at personal resolution. He says to these ladies, I want you to get together and work at complete understanding. I urge you, Odia, and I urge Syntyche to be of the same mind, to have the same mindset in the Lord. Paul's already told us. Look back at Philippians chapter 2. He already has laid the foundation for what he's urging these ladies to do. In chapter 2, verse 1, he says... If there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. He says, listen, let me appeal to you on the basis of the common spiritual resources we all enjoy. And let me appeal to you on the basis of the one purpose we have in life, which is the gospel and Jesus Christ. Whatever you're disagreeing over, it isn't that important. And then he goes on to say, verse 3, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Don't merely look out for your own personal interests, but for the interests of others. Boy, you know how many disagreements would be resolved if we took that approach? But he said, here's how you resolve it. But what happens if that doesn't work? What if the two ladies can't get it together? What if they can't work it out? Well, there's another step you can take. Verse 3, Get a third party involved. Get another mature believer if necessary, but don't leave it unresolved. Notice he says, verse 3, Indeed, true companion, true yoke fellow. Now, we don't know who that is. It's reasonable to assume that it was either one of the elders of the church in Philippi, or it may have been um, one of Paul's traveling associates that he had assigned there. We don't know, but the Philippians obviously knew. Regardless, he says, I want you to help these women. Come alongside these women because unresolved disagreements, listen to this, unresolved disagreements will eventually produce settled conflict. You say, well, what happens if after all of that we really still disagree? If we can't resolve it and if we agree that the issues are too important to just overlook? Well, there's only one thing left to do and that's to graciously part ways but without sowing discord. Paul and Barnabas' example is a great one. In Acts 15, as we saw, They parted ways, and yet there's every indication that they remained close friends. But the key is, don't become the flashpoint for division in the church. The first step to spiritual stability, Paul says, is to resolve to live in harmony with other brothers and sisters in Christ. The second step to spiritual stability is found in verse 4. Determined to respond to life circumstances with joy. Determined to respond to life circumstances with joy. Notice verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. You see, for Paul, joy is an indispensable element of the Christian life. And this letter, this brief letter, sets forth this theme of joy like no other. We've already seen it several times. We saw it in chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. 
chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, chapter 3, verse 1. And now he returns to it here again with an unqualified command. Rejoice always. Now, can we just be honest with each other? If anybody else had written us a letter and said, all right, here it is, I want you to rejoice always, what would our first response have been? (laughs) Yeah, right. There's a guy out of touch with the real world. He must not understand my circumstances. He must not understand my situation. But the Philippians knew better. They couldn't respond that way to Paul, and neither can we. You see, Paul had an incredible credibility with the Philippians. You see it in Acts 16. We won't turn there, but you remember the story in Acts 16 when the church was founded, a story I'm sure that was still spread by the members of the church. Paul saw Lydia, the first European convert, come to faith in Christ, and then he was followed by a slave girl. And you remember the story how she kept following him day after day, and Paul eventually turns around and he casts the demon out of her, and she becomes gloriously saved. And one of the charter members of the church and of course her owners didn't like it those who were profiting by her fortune telling that's tom pennington here on the word unleashed with part one of his series six steps to spiritual stability tom will have part two for you on our next program and we do hope you'll join us then Well, the Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do that by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening. The Word Unleashed exists because God, in His Word, has given you every spiritual resource you need to grow in Jesus Christ. It's our prayer that the power of God's Word be unleashed in your life.